0: Hi, I'm Sharon Rojo-Roy. Thank you for joining our Health Disparities Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rolf Taylor, who is our producer extraordinaire for this podcast series. And today I get to turn the tables on him. He is usually doing the questions, but this time, since we are celebrating our 100th episode of this podcast, I literally cannot believe it, but it's so fantastic. Um, we decided we're going to talk with the creator, the producer, and the director extraordinaire about some of the most memorable podcasts this year.
1: It's wonderful to be here, Sharon. Thank you for inviting me and turning the tables.
0: Exactly. So, let's talk a little bit about the the health disparities podcast and movement is life. Roth, mm-hmm. can you give the give us an overview of of movement is life and why you know we're both a part of the caucus? Can you give me the elevator? Speech? Oh, sure.
1: Yeah. I'll let let me let me see if I can get that down to elevator size. <laughs> well, you know, movement is life is actually a um, it's almost like a brain trust and it's been around for 10 years so it's 10 years since the first kind of group meeting where people came together um, thinking about health equity and particularly health equity in the musculoskeletal space but I think what we found with health equity is that it's really it's not contained in one therapeutic category it's it's, it covers all categories and um, health equity and health disparities is all about, you know, the differences from population to population, I see, you know, health disparities as being the symptom of problems with health equity. And it's the data points that tell you where you have um, inequitable distribution of healthcare, basically. So I think, you know, Movement is Life is an organization that has come together to talk about this problem, to try and tackle this problem, to kind of unravel you know, the issues that are around it. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to join the group um, probably three years ago now. And, you know, initially, we were talking about how do we take this conversation about health equity and take it to more people. And as our leader says, we we have to broaden the audience and elevate the message.
0: Elevate right. the message. <laughs> I, I so agree. You know, I've been on the steering committee for about five years. I came a couple years before you did, mm-hmm. and you know, coming from a large insurer, you know, you have a lot of community partners, and there's there's surgeons, and there's so many different people with different perspectives, but coming together for one thing, and it's just so fascinating to me. Sometimes I'm sitting, when you're sitting in the room and you're planning the caucus or the different events, you feel like, oh my goodness, all these people have all these degrees. But then you realize that there's insight from everyone and everybody brings their own level of experience and knowledge to help fight um, these disparities and to help broaden the message, like um, our leader says. So, which is pretty yeah. exciting. I think as we get into this conversation, Ralph, what, you know, what excites me about the healthcare, the the health disparities podcast, are the different perspectives. Um, I've got a couple of my favorites that I hope we could talk about today. But you know, can you share with 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 us, like, what was your most impactful one? Like, what? How did it make you feel?
1: Do you, do you recall? <laughs> I love that question because I really, I really had some quite emotional moments participating in in, uh, in 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 the podcast i've been there you know at the controls i've been there setting up the microphones i've been there writing scripts writing out questions i remember one moment in particular when we had father greg from homeboy industries yes yes right? yes remember? i remember that one now he's talked at our caucus Jesuit priest he had agreed when he came to our conference and he was giving a talk about the great work that Homeboy Industries has done. And, and in a nutshell, for, the, for, for, for people who are not familiar, uh, he's based in Los Angeles. And he was appalled at how many young um, young men he was putting in, in the ground, burying young men because I, of, gang, of gang violence. And um, so he had set up a framework for engaging with people part of it was kind of funny because he he basically said yeah we wanted to get all of these gang gang kids into you know support groups so i had this picture of like these gang kids you know sat in a circle talking about their problems and um, in fact that's what he managed to do and i think that was that was what was so incredible about his gift his ability to actually be a convener of these kids who had been you know they 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 join gangs when they are before they're 10 years old yep. they're already groomed for that life they don't so they they're on a conveyor belt they don't really have much choice about it then of course like we all do you know get a little bit older you start getting a little bit more enlightened and you start to think hey hang on a second and his great gift was that he was able to you know convene um, those groups he 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 took you know the drive and the ambition of those kids um and he and he focused it on homeboy industries and and found you know legitimate jobs and uh, was part of the you know the movement to significantly re- reduce gang violence but when he was he was telling us about this and the trauma in those communities um and um there were three of us in there it was um Dr. <laughs> Simpson Mason was interviewing him and she's an extremely empathetic individual So as she was asking him questions, and he was giving the answers, she started tearing up. And, and um, so and then that's very contagious. So I started tearing up as well. It was a tear fist. And I think Father Greg was looking at us like, what, what is going on? You know, he was, I think we broke his concentration a little bit. (laughs) But we both was like, we were so moved by what he was talking about. So that was very memorable. That's powerful
0: that the emotion, even as we do these podcasts or tell those stories, how still the emotion of the work that people are putting into communities has made a difference. Small things. I mean, think about making bread, getting gang members to make and sell bread, and like yeah. how, you know, empowering them to even do better for their own community, to help their own community.
1: I think this, you know, when we started the podcast, that wasn't necessarily part of our thinking. What we learned as we, as we went through was that in that kind of situation where you're talking about something as moving and, and as emotional as that, it really comes out in a conversation so well. You know, the right. authenticity of the conversation is so clearly communicated. Every nuance of that is coming through in a way that it doesn't in written text. So I think we kind of, quite early on, we realized that for our space, when we're talking about equity, we're talking about diversity, we're talking about inclusion, there is no more inclusive medium than audio. It's the modern form of
0: storytelling. When you think about back in, you know, historically, that's how history was told. Through stories, people kept that up. So you felt this connection by hearing the voice of people tell the stories. I think, you know, um, when we think about stories, one of the podcasts that struck with me, and 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 I could be transparent here is because it's a different political side, was Governor Musgrave, Ronnie Musgrave of Mississippi, Republican, but going. Where he was talking about going to help kindergartners, that was the first step in in helping to solve health inequities and disparities, like teaching kids how to read and eat. like he literally was getting to the root of the problem. And it wasn't about, I mean, yes, we do have to help old, you know, because when you think about what Father Gregory was doing with older children, you know, children, because really they're all children looking for, you know, a place to call home. I just love that story. I thought that it was fascinating to me. It made me think, I won't say differently. It just opened my eyes to that people may come from a different political spectrum or place, but there are a lot of people doing good things. So I was moved by that. And when you talk about convening and putting, pulling people together that you would not think (laughs) <laughs> would be right. working on something because you you understand what's happening in Mississippi, you know, the lower education level. For him to step in and know where they needed to address things first, I thought that was pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. It's 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 like they were really, and he was really tackling those disparities at the onset to where they, that we could make a difference. And, you know, we talk about ACEs in a lot of our programming and podcasts and at the events and how those childhood traumas play an impact on how your life, how you end up living or being or what you wind up doing and creating for other people. I thought that that was pretty powerful, a way to really step in and assist at the moment.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, he was um, he was very compelling. The way he was talking about that um, investment that was made yes. in early, in particularly in early education, early um, was that you know we often we've had a number of people come on the podcast and talk about how vital it is that we start pushing investment um, upstream, and that's a very consistent theme. I remember. Um, Claire Pomeroy coming um, mm-hmm. and, and talking about that. In particular, you know, her sort of mantra was we have to build the consideration of health into all policy. No matter what the policy is, we have to think about the the health implications. And we have to push our investment upstream so that we are, you know, building a foundation for, for healthy um, communities and not waiting until everybody gets sick and then having to spend the money then. You said an important part.
0: You said about Upstream, um, you know, and the fact that that's a common theme, you know, through these podcasts and how we need to really push for it, whether it's policy or, you know, what other things do you, do you see? Like now they're saying racism is a public health emergency. Um, mm,
1: yep. What, you know, any impact there or? We you know, the podcasts have been running for two years. <laughs> yes. And in that two-year period, we have gone through, uh, I do believe it's an inflection point. I don't think you can always know an inflection point until many years after. But in, in the case, you know, it was a coincidence for us that we started the podcast, you know, a few months before the pandemic started. And then... And then as soon as the pandemic started, and we had never recorded a podcast episode using Zoom or anything virtual, suddenly we had to. And we started talking about the pandemic. And then suddenly, um, you know, CNN and everybody else was talking about structural racism. Everyone was talking about health disparities. Everyone was talking about yes. uh, these, these um the cause and effect in a way that, that I, I don't think had been talked about for a long time. Um, or if ever had, has there ever been a point in, in, in history where so many people have been pointing out that certain populations are disproportionately impacted?
0: Well, I don't know, Rolf. I think that people have been talking about it, but maybe people weren't really listening. One thing about 2020 is people began to listen. I don't know if it's because they didn't have time to go to their sports thing or a concert or whatever. They had time to listen. And then they started to understand. And that's what I think made such an impact. And why these podcasts have been, people have been listening to them and engaging with them. Because it's true. You 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 start to get this understanding. And, you, you know, you don't want to believe it. But then when the evidence and the data point to it, you can't help but to, to, to stand up and pay attention. And you think about movement is life for 10 years. They've been kind of raising the air, you know, from trying to have policy or value-based payment, So everybody gets a fair shot at affordable and equitable health care. And now here we are, you know, 2020 caused people to actually sit down and listen, and maybe that's why these yeah. podcasts have been great, because people are listening.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, uh, during, the, during the first months of the pandemic, our listener numbers shot up, really did, really was a, a big change. And I think, you know, people must have been looking for, obviously, for information about COVID, and we were in a great position to actually um, help with that, because we have the brain trust. And, you know, we got a lot of doctors, we got a lot of nurses, we got incredibly diverse viewpoints. Um, and so, you know, that came through loud and clear right from, I guess we, I, I guess the first one we did was in March. You know, we, we moved pretty quickly. Um, I remember Reverend Richardson from Grace Baptist Church in uh, in uh, New York State. Oops, just, powerful. Just, just, uh, powerful. Manhattan. Powerful um, individual. Powerful. And he was saying what you just said. He said, we've been talking about this for decades. We've been talking about these disparities. We've been talking about the disproportionate impact. Suddenly people seem to be getting it.
0: I think um, one of our, um, Dr. Kelly Wells, who's phenomenal at Florida Blue, she's kind of our SME. She says all the time, COVID just ripped the Band-Aid off. It really just really showed where the disparities were, like it couldn't get any more obvious. And then, you know, what happened with George Floyd? So the band aid came off across the platforms and people stood up to take notice. And then, when people say you can't do things, when our former administration saying you can't teach conscious bias, I mean, one of our podcasts from Dr. Augustus White is about unconscious bias and in profession in the profession. Um, in the the medical um field so i mean he is like a standard bearer and to know that he's been on a podcast and been on several podcasts and interview people it's uh, he's like a a hero or we like to you know what do we call him (laughs) one of the best (laughs) one of the best people uh,
1: well i said i I mean he is he's iconic he's iconic (laughs) um and uh he's a professor he's a uh, he, I mean, his story is amazing.
0: Well, you know what? I want to think about that story for a minute. We do Black History Month facts at Florida Blue for our um, in February. He was literally one of our Black History Month facts. Somebody like pulled him up, and then I was like, yeah. "Wait a minute, that's Doctor White. I know him. He's like the best human." And um, literally, him being like the first student at Stanford, medical student at Stanford, and I met black medical student. It was amazing his story. Yeah. So uh, before we digress into the number of <laughs> people that are on this uh, co- the steering committee who are amazing. Mm-hmm. I'll let you finish the story.
1: <laughs> no, well, exactly. I mean, I think, I think, you know, um, it's such an amazing honor and um, you know, I get a bit starstruck sometimes with some <laughs> of the people that we, um, that we have um, that we engage with and who, um, who give us support, you know, Dr. White's one of the, one of the great thinkers in the way that he, he, um he researched with uh, i guess with his team at harvard but he researched a framework for understanding and even testing and measuring for unconscious bias and which resulted in an app it resulted in a process yeah. there's a system there it's scientific um it's it's very clever in the way that it works because after all you can't necessarily just do a q and a about something which is unconscious well, um,
0: that is very true.
1: That's so, very true. <laughs> so, that, so that, you know, if, when you take the test, um, you realize that, you know, this is probing very deeply. You know, it's not about a right or wrong answer. It's about how long it takes you to answer, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the questions in the test It's just very sophisticated. Um, so I think, you know, that's... Uh, and, and then to your point about, you know, the last administration you know, you know, having a different orientation, obviously, in terms of public health. Yes. And yet, during this time of the pandemic, the spotlight has been um, shone on our public health leaders. So suddenly, I think a, a much um, larger audience of the population has been kind of thinking about, you know, you, you have to look at things from a public health perspective. Um, and, you know, certain things don't work in that scenario. I think that's one of the themes that's come over is, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to have a strong public health orientation to fix these problems which are um, structural, that have been created over time through policy and can only be addressed, really, through policy to, to reverse them and mitigate them. So I think that's come over really clearly.
0: And what's so nice about all of the podcasts, you, you mentioned, you know, there's thinkers, there's policymakers that are, you know, conversing in the series. And there's doers from Operation Change, people going into communities and actually convening a group of people, whether it's peer pressure or like-mindedness, to get healthier together, to, to, to feel better, you know, to, to do better. So it's interesting. It's not just a bunch of policy wants talking or a bunch of academia, which mm-hmm. it's a combination of all that putting it into action from apps to action, right? From apps to action.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> so, interesting stories. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's I think, interesting stories. I, and we know we did a lot of, um, we did a, a long series um, or a number of episodes about this program Operation Change, which fundamentally, this is about creating community. It's about creating a mini community for eighteen weeks, and you may have forty or fifty ladies in that program who are meeting every week. If they come every week, and most mm-hmm. of them do, which is remarkable in itself, because it's a three-hour session every week. And uh, you know, we talked about the. There's a theory behind why that is done. You know how you how you create. A sense of community over that period of time. And as it turns out, it's the most powerful antidepressant available. Yes,
0: it is. Yes, and it is.
1: I was actually stunned by the results. You know, my my background is I've I've done a lot of healthcare marketing. I actually actually launched as a as a as a marketing manager. I launched an antidepressant, you know, back in a previous life. Um so I know a lot about psychiatry and and you know re- how effective antidepressants can be. This this was more powerful, and uh, you know I I, I was really um, amazed by the testimonial that was given by some of the participants from the programs that just said said flat out, "This program saved my life."
0: I know, and that's so amazing. Whether it's urban or rural, when you have you know Dr. Huff leading that same kind of program in rural Georgia and people cried with her. like they wanted to stay together. They formed family, familial relationships. I remember when we were starting the one up and Watts and how the people came together, you know, it doesn't yeah. matter about their community or what it is because that's their community. And they felt, felt a sense of doing things together. So it's a powerful statement that I mean, a powerful statement and a, and a really a powerful movement to operation change. Um, and then the ladies that are part of that. I love how they even come to the caucus in November and they're able to share and gather much more insight and, um, and, and really get to continue on. It's like it's on. They still are together. Two of the ladies that were in Operation Change in Chicago um, were part of the first group. You know, obviously they're doing some community navigating. They came to Florida um, at an invite for our foundation um, um, executive director, who spoke at the office one year, to come to that that event and learn from other nonprofits and other organizations mm-hmm. that are trying to do some community change, and that's what's so I think just fantastic about this. How you the the what are you, the octopus legs? Or they just kind of connect and spread out and really grab onto other things and other people.
1: Absolutely, you know. I I think the um, the connectivity that you see, and I really hope um, that, you know, people who've subscribed to the podcast and you know now we're into the '90s in terms of episodes, so, you know, those patterns must be apparent to people who are catching every episode. Um, but you know, we recently had um, a, a gentleman called Bruce Johnson came on the podcast. Um, and he'd been a reporter for CBS in Washington, D.C. area. Um, you know, he's met every mayor. He's, he's, he's like, oh, I'm
0: so connected. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and he's he's also got his own he also had his own um, health story to to tell, because he he had a heart attack and he wrote a book about it, mm-hmm. and um, he was so concerned about you know the nation's health and the fact that um, you know particularly for African Americans that risk of heart disease and a disproportionate number of people who are who are dying from from heart attacks and from um, heart disease. So was, he was so concerned about it, but something that he said that was so. Um, that has chimed again and again in other discussions was he said, you've got to let communities, you know, define their own solutions. You've got to give them the space to come up with what works for them. You can't just come and impose a solution on people. So he was, he was so strong about that. And then we had, um, we had the operation change discussion where Dr. Watkins, who, um, who is on our steering group and was one right. of the architects of Operation Change, and um, she said pretty much the same thing. She said this is a this is a um, participatory model. We don't go to these communities and say, right, we want you to do this, that, and the other. We go and we sit with them and th- and we say, what do you think you need?
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then-
1: and then we, our contribution to that is to bring some experience and to bring, you know, some facilitation to to the table. So, and then we just had another recording, something called Ward Infinity, which is a health program in Southeast Washington D.C., um, where exactly the same theme came out again, which was, you know. A, 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 A group from a local hospital, the the Sibley Memorial Hospital, which is affiliated with Johns Hopkins, had gone in to look at how they could tackle health disparities and to basically consult with the community about what would work and what would be helpful. Right. And then the things that came out of that were very much community-driven. And if they're community-driven, then they're sustainable. So these are, you know, I just feel I'm in such a, you know, fortunate position um, that I have to listen to all this stuff at least five times because I have to edit it. (laughs) But, you know, it really helps me. It helps me get it um, as someone, you know, um, who, you know, I didn't study public health. This is me coming to a very public health oriented um, podcast. And um, I just found it personally so enriching to, to, to hear these messages.
0: I love how you said that about it being enriching. And I love the themes. It seems to about community, which is what the caucus is about. It's about community. Yes, it's a community of some heavy hitters and, and some people. But like I say, we all put our pants on the same way, one leg at a time. And if we are, you know, bringing our best selves all the time and our knowledge and experience, we can help to solve some of these issues. So I love that about enriching and then the community, meant from the community navigators, or even meeting people in the community that are making change, like the Black PA, that podcast was fabulous, to where, you know, you're talking to uh, some unsung heroes, talk about some, or some people that you don't even know exist. And the fact that they have to have their own community, because there's not that many of them, to help support and bring along, I mean, ninth dimensions, I mean, nth dimensions. Yeah. I should say it the right way, um, nth dimensions, and how that started. Oh, don't worry,
1: we can add easy yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 I know a, a community, of you know, organiz- an organization that tried to bring in more black orthopedic surgeons because there weren't any. I mean, recently, yeah. the what is it, Tennessee State, or they literally had a call out for any black male that wanted to study medicine free tuition. They had one person. That went to the program and you know was accepted. One future doctor, they literally had a call out for any wow. black males that wanted to be doctors. So to know that organizations like this exist to help and then not only just recruit them, but to help get them through the program so that their support systems. A lot of the podcasts too focus on the support systems that are needed, like you know, community navigators. And how they are really going into a community, because here's that word again, community, right? You know, what's interesting to me, we talk about the health care workers and, you know, a little bit of those funds for the, the new infrastructure plan. We're talking about caregivers and then health care workers that are going into, you know, rural communities, really to support rural communities, because what's closing in communities, rural hospitals. My aunt works in rural Alabama. They've had like two hospitals closed. My other aunt, diabetic, got to go get um, insulin. They get on a a bus in the morning at 4 a.m. to go two, you know, three hours over to Birmingham to do their dialysis. Then come back and then do it two, three times a week It because there's no hospital system big enough to even support a clinic.
1: See, that to me sounds like that is as demanding as having a job.
0: Yes, it is. demanding. <laughs> how do you keep a job when you got to stay alive? Exactly. You, you, then you wind up going. So that's why public health. That is what to me is what we should be, be looking at when you talk about future speak or, you know, people are like, oh, what's going to come in the future? Uh, the public health emergency is going to come in the future. If we have no hospitals or clinics for people to go to. We're going to see a record number of either either people dying or not even getting the care that they need. I mean, the Delta has the highest number of amputations um, mm-hmm. in in the country because there are no clinics there, there. Nobody's doing those procedures to help even save people. And a lot of the people are diabetic. So they right. wind up having a lot of amputations and probably avoidable. But if there's no treatment plan or you got to drive four hours. To get to a hospital or to some place where you can get treatment
1: yeah and i think you know the the, the kind of situation you're just describing there it, it strikes me quite often that you know we need to be um we need to be sounding the alarm about some of these tragic uh, untenable unconscionable scenarios that we see in health And, you know, I I kind of see part of the role of the Health Disparities podcast is to say, hey, guys, this isn't normal, right? We all all got so used to these terrible things happening and what's happening with amputations is kind of like it's almost accepted now or else it isn't talked about, you know, it's kind of, you know, uh, brushed under the rug. So I do think that's an important thing for us to do with the podcast is to say hey guys this is this is preventable let's not just assume that because it's always happened it has to keep happening and can't we unravel you know the root causes of these problems and I think the other you know really striking theme that has come has come across as you were saying about nth dimensions you know bringing um Bringing people of color into the orthopedic profession. So we have, you know, uh, we have um, Dr. O'Connor, is our chair. She's hosted probably more po- podcasts than anybody else. She, she's a white orthopedic surgeon um, up in New England, and she's a unicorn just for yes, being, she is. For yes, being she female, is. right?
0: <laughs> yeah, for being female <laughs> alone and then leading to the youth practice. But that cherry picking, like that cherry picking, yeah. Like, yeah, the, don't let me drop it and cherry picking around here.
1: <laughs> so you know when we've when we've worked up scripts and we've talked about certain subjects, you know it's been really interesting. And you know again, this is very enriching for anyone who's listening to see this kind of like how this all works. But as but as she will point out, you know the data is there to show that when you have male surgeons and female surgeons working together in the same clinic the results for everybody are better. Yes. And I I think this was, you know, kind of like a, a, you know, again, an aha moment that, that has emerged in the podcast when we had some biomedical engineers come on the podcast. They were giving examples about how diverse teams are much better with innovation. And they gave a couple of examples. You know, they gave the example of, you know, the big airbag scandal that happened. So if it had been female engineers they wouldn't have designed the airbags that way because they would have thought, hey, what about the kids? Yes. Right?
0: <laughs> and what about, I'm a little shorter. Like, but that was fascinating to, because, you know, diversity of thought in a room. But, yes. you know, not only solving innovation, but solving public health issues too. And because people would see, oh, well, wait a minute. Oh, that's not, you know, I w- worked for a big hospital chain once and they literally was like, we're, gonna, we're not going to focus on women's health. And it was like, what? Like, we're going to do like, you know, brain surgery and heart. And it's like, well, if heart disease is the number one killer of women, why aren't we focusing on women's health? Of course, now they have a big women's hospital now. But it was one of those things so, that you're like, why are we debating this? Like, what? Getting that? So when yeah. you think about, yeah, feminism and, you know, just diversity of thought in a room can help solve problems like public health issues. Right. You know, diversity of appearance too people need to look different when you're sitting in the room because everyone's gonna bring their own well we you know sometimes you say your own biases to the room but then some of those biases will help make good public policy you know we think about public policy mm-hmm. and the late um John Lewis and working on that bill just to count to, to, to track the data of what people look like who are getting Medicaid and Medicare how right. like You would think that that makes sense to do. So we know how sick are people, how much work do we need to put in us, you know, in some areas so that the data will speak for us to know that that wasn't there. Talk about getting in good trouble. Like (laughs) (laughs) the people here, you know, meeting him and having him
1: sponsor that bill and just, you know, it's just an amazing story. Absolutely. And I, and the, um, you know the the subsequent discussions we've had with other people related to that bill and the fact that, that bill is likely to move through yes, which is a right now. Um, and you know we, we hopefully we can support that process because we've got some great discussions about the um, the importance of the uh, now I'm trying to re- remember the name of the bill um, equality in Medicare and Medicaid Medicaid treatment. <laughs> Act. Right? That's right. got uh, to get it EMMT, right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> which is moving through. And I think um, Cory Bucker is sponsoring it now.
0: It, yes, he is.
1: Um, he
0: picked s- up the mantle for the Senate.
1: So there's um yeah, I mean there's there are just so many um so many insights that you know d- d- generally people don't get any training in Thinking about health equity and thinking about inclusion, and there's a lot of kind of like buzzwords and there's a big glossary around it, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, lots, and of, think... lots of books, lots of
0: papers, lots of papers, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and there's and, and and you know, I think this is one of the things that's been happening over the last however many years is that there has been a lot of research at the academic level, which is now kind of filtering into. Um, into, into the mainstream and, and and everybody's talking about it. But I feel like if you listen to, you know, um, a good number of the episodes of the Health Dispire podcast, you will get, you will start to grasp those concepts. Some of them are a little bit abstract, some of them less so, but you'll start to get the how that all fits together and the kind of cause and effect of why we end up with some zip codes with a life expectancy of 59 years and some zip codes with a life expectancy of 92 years. And I know. it's... A system.
0: um, Yes. I mean, being one of the only, you know, being from a payer and on the caucus and then obviously, you know, Dr. Harper as well. You know, that's one thing that we're not always good at collecting the data, what's happening in our own zip codes. But we're realizing with innovation, because we've got a great innovation team leading the charge here, at least we do, that that's what we have to do. We cannot anymore just guess. We cannot assume. We have to literally use the data. And that's why the EEMT bill is so important, is understanding the data, because where do we need to approach this? But then to realize that your zip code does, I mean, one of the podcasts is how, how your zip code impacts your, um, your lifespan. You know, we, that's a powerful story
1: that now at least people are hearing and understanding and I think the other finding or implication from, from the discussions around the EMMT Act is that in public health, as in any kind of policy, we, we see a problem and then we want to fix that problem. And if our people are in power, we're going to try and fix it a certain way. Yes. And if their people are in power, they're going to fix it a certain way. Either way, it's going to take expenditure and there's going to be a huge fight about spending that money And the one thing they're not going to do is spend the extra money on predicting the impact of the policy but the the emmt act really nails that and says you have to do an impact assessment before you roll out a far-reaching policy that could have unforeseen consequences and as we've seen with things like value-based uh, uh, payment models, and there's been a lot of discussion about that, the unforeseen consequences are the devil in the detail oh, that yes. that have resulted in, in some cases, a widening of disparities. It wasn't intended that way. You know, the, the the systems are brought in for 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 maybe sound reasons, and they're probably here to stay. But at the same time, you know, the un, the unforeseen consequences have hurt people.
0: So well, that's a powerful thing you say. You think about Daniel Dawes in his book 150 Years of Obamacare. He like laid that out, the unforeseen things that happened. Even though people were, some people are trying to make good policy or they think it's policy, but it wasn't equitable. It still wasn't fair. Even though people were making policy.
1: Right, right. They, Even they, though they were making policy which was coming from. Uh, coming from that orientation of trying to address inequity, in, in it still managed to be inequitable in some way, yes. and you can't please all the people all of the time. Um, but I think that's been for for the idealists out there. That's the that's the kind of chastening message. Is <laughs> exactly you're, <laughs> you're right.
0: What podcast made you laugh the most when you talk about chasing a message? because you kind of chuckled there, so I thought that that was kind of fun to interject there <laughs> and see. What was your what, fun, what podcast did you think just made you laugh or made you feel? even more hopeful
1: gosh i don't know i had I, I can't think i can't think right now of anything that was really really funny to do um we had some bloopers in some cases <laughs> that's uh, probably what say. i should
0: have asked and, what was the biggest uh... <laughs> blooper <laughs> can you uh... share can you share tell us the deets
1: come on Rob. and um... <laughs> And I have, pe- you know, I have people, I, I have people coming back after a podcast, and they listen to it back, and they say, "Oh, I want to add in something." And I'm like, "You really can't add it in. It doesn't. It never sounds the same. It always sounds like, you know, it doesn't sound right." So I'm not going to get. Gi- I'm not going to give anyway give away anybody's secrets or or, or bloopers. Um, oh. <laughs> w- like you're literally no fun. You're literally no fun. <laughs> um, you're
0: supposed to bring that British humor to
1: us. <laughs> I do think that um, for me, for me, I think there's been many instances of where I've really felt reverence towards Mm -hmm. people. It's been a serious business in a way. It is,
0: isn't it? It's almost like there's really no laughing matter, but it's, it's like somehow like people like to say, you have to find joy in order to continue on. And, you know, I think of the operation change podcast where these people have found some joy, even in these situations that seem so terrible. Like I'm, you know, I'm overweight. I can't get my surgery. There's just my neighbor. I can't walk in my neighborhood or it's too far for me to go. They still seem to have found some joy, haven't they? I think Don't so. Think? Yeah,
1: I think so. And we've had people that have recovered from, you know, things like opiate addiction. Yes. And, they, you know, they're introduced to opiates because they had joint pain, they had very severe arthritis and then that became a struggle on top of everything else and yet you know they come out of that with such amazing you know uh, good humor so yeah. you know it's very it's it's, it's just in, uh, what we do is very very human um i think the i think the um recording we made with dr vivian pinn was um very striking to me um we you know there's a hall named after her, the pin yes. Hall, at the there University is. of Virginia. And we basically recorded the podcast in the library next to Pinhall. And I remember so vividly um, that in that library, we were given a secluded, we were given like the private, um, what did they call it? They could, The library, the historical library, which is where they had lots of archives and lots yes. of- um lots of like displays and it was closed to the public so we went in there with dr pin and uh and then we found that there were dip- display cases with photographs of her oh! in the display cases just right there you know we that's hadn't, striking that hadn't, striking hadn't been pre-set up or anything like that you know it was like all done at short notice and there she was and then she sat down and the first thing she said i really don't want to talk about myself i'm tired of talking about myself and then she went on to talk about her story for about two hours (laughs) (laughs) and told us about some of her experiences and um you know i'm you know i grew up in england i i um i i wasn't familiar with some of the historical aspects of the united states uh, the things that she shared, you know, she was the first—not only the first, um, the first um, female student in the medical stu- school, but the first black student in the medical school. Which is amazing. She's, she said she nearly quit and um she was befriended by some people and she actually after we did the interview she showed us a photograph that she'd just taken of a reunion with some of her classmates who she said had actually befriended her and supported her and um you know made sure she felt she felt at home and felt comfortable um and i think that taught it certainly taught me something about allyship and Why? You know how you 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 can find a way to, to do that. Um, she talked about how you know how she grew up in Lynchburg, and uh, or near Lynchburg. Lynchburg was her um, closest public library. When she went home in the summertime and she wanted to study, um, she wasn't allowed in the library. She wasn't allowed in the library of her hometown. And she's a UVA student gone home. You know the stuff we take for granted now. So um, I, you know, I felt such a lot of um, just just reverence in that in that situation to say, boy, did I have it easy? You
0: know, I think about her and her story, too. And I'm like, I had it easy. But then I have to think I stand on her shoulders because of what she was able to do, you know. And, you know, I went to, to college in Western Maryland. I would have never been able to go to college in Western Maryland if, if people like her weren't. Fighting the good fight uh, would have been, you know, I, I had that opportunity. And I love that word that you said about it, reverence. You know, you know we kind of joked about is there a humorous one or whatever, but it is a lot of reverence. It's, it's power in telling these stories. What, I mean, it's power in sharing these people's stories yeah. and, and understanding even the struggle. What like, like the kids like to say, the struggle is real. It's been real. And these stories, um, these podcasts have really shown that. I mean, in closing, I think, is there anything else you'd like to add, Rob, about, well, one, why people should listen to the Health Disparities podcast? (laughs) That's like the most important. Don't we need to do a call to action for these
1: things? (laughs) Well, look, you know, I think that um, we are 100 episodes in. We're still finding our feet. And we're still getting into our stride. And I think um, if there's one call to action, I would say to anybody listening, it is help us find a bigger audience, share the podcast, let people know about it, encourage people to be part of this community. Because if you subscribe, you know we know how many subscribers we have. We know that our community is growing all the time, um, and you know it helps us have a platform to um, bring in you know uh, more higher and higher profile guests and so we can have more influence potentially so i think that's that's an important call to action we want to keep growing this platform um we we'd love to hear feedback about uh you know subjects to cover and um it's a little bit strange with the podcast it isn't a two way interaction in the way that a post is on twitter right um but we really welcome people to find us on twitter uh and it's at mil caucus and mm-hmm. mil stands for movement movement is life so at mil caucus so you can give us feedback and we always uh we always announce you know the podcasts on on twitter that way so we like that um and and you know i'm so delighted to have you sharon you know, coming onto the podcast and hosting for the first time? I know,
0: I'm very excited. This was my first podcast to host. And um, I obviously will be taking up some of the mantle from Roth. I'm very excited. I, I think too, one of the, like my call to action would be, listen with the open mind. You never know what you could learn. Like I hear different opinions, different thoughts and walk away as a, gosh, it seems so cliche to say, but as a better person or better thinker or maybe have just a better understanding. And I think that that's what the healthcare disparity podcast can do for anyone. So I appreciate your
1: time. When you put it like that, I think my work is done.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, then that's the best thing ever. But then, of course, it isn't. The work is never done, right? Well, it's never done telling (laughs) the story, right? Because, you know, we talked about 2020 and what that what happened and what continue to happen 2021 is proven to be another doozy of a year just as just as much i mean you know the impact continually telling the stories it's like who oh, hear it even though they're not in their car driving as much as they were but they're washing dishes or they're sitting down before dinner or they're getting up in the morning and listening because everybody has an alexa so or you know you know your iHome or whatever you call it,
1: and then you can just say, "Play the podcast," or your Apple no, Music it, it, right it, there it, on absolutely. your television. Um, it works for Google too. Hey Google, play the Health Disparities podcast, and you just get the latest episode. So, which
0: is awesome.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thank Technology. you, Roger. It was
0: a pleasure to talk with you.
1: My pleasure, Sharon, and welcome to hosting. And let's make some some more great episodes and find some terrific guests. I know you're out oh. hunting for for new Woo-hoo. guests, right?
0: Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. so thank you listeners for joining us we hope you enjoyed this podcast and you will be intrigued enough to to the next one or all of the other 94 that you missed (laughs) 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 we'll talk soon (laughs) All all right